developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. In episode 146 of the Guitar Music Theory podcast, I answer more listener questions about chord tones and extensions, the song White Rabbit, playing with injuries and hand limitations, and more. Greetings, guitar engineers. Welcome to the Guitar Music Theory Podcast. I am your host, Desi Serna, author of Fretboard Theory, Guitar Theory for Dummies, and more. And today, I'm going to answer listener questions. I've got questions about chord tones and extensions, the song White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane, playing with injuries and hand limitations, keeping track of measures while soloing, applying pentatonic scale patterns, and reacquiring your chops after taking some time off. It's going to be a great discussion. I'm going to play some fun things for you. But before we get started, let me direct all of my podcast listeners over to my website, guitarmusictheory.com. Answer the question I ask you about your playing, and I'll send you free custom video instruction that is calibrated to your current level. Whether you're a beginner still needing to learn the basics, or you need help with playing bar chords, guitar soloing, finger picking, or you want to delve deeply into music theory, I have a free course for you. I can help you fill gaps in your knowledge and fill gaps in your playing so you can move forward and reach your music goals. Enroll in your free video course now at guitarmusictheory.com. You can click on the link in the podcast show notes. so we are ready to dive in our first questions come from Laurel and he's studying my book fretboard theory he has a question about chapter 10 in chapter 10 I show you how to add additional chord tones to chords to create chords such as sus2 sus4 major 7 minor 7 and so on so Laurel says regarding chapter 10 what chord shapes do you recommend I memorize I assume remembering all of the various chord shapes covered is unnecessary, but are there any essential shapes I should know? He goes on to say, the most important ones seem to be the seventh bar chord shapes, the common open chords with sevenths, and a basic understanding of sus and add chords. All right, well, good question. Um, So regarding chapter 10, um, Really, you just want to get to know the basic concept of how those chords are built and then learn some of the portions of the songs that I reference. And then you'll understand those types of chords when you encounter them in music. For example, 
Um, if you understand why uh, C at 9 is called C at 9, because a ninth interval, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, a ninth interval is added to the chord, then you'll realize when the same thing is happening in other chords as you play around the fretboard. And if you learn some of the songs that I reference in the Fretboard Theory program, that'll help things stick and you'll understand how that add nine sound is used in music. And I'll give you a couple of examples here. Um, Good Riddance, Time of Your Life by Green Day uses a C add nine together with a G and a D. So does the song There She Goes by Sixpence None the Richer. Um, Every Breath You Take by The Police uses some different versions of it around the fretboard. So I'm playing like an A major bar chord shape here, but I'm adding this note. What is that note? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Oh, it's nine, no nine notes away from my root, so it's an A add nine. Um, this is also used in the song, uh, this one. Uh, let's try this again. by Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians. Um, so again, it's not like you uh, need to memorize all of the chord shapes that I teach in Fretboard Theory Chapter 10. And by the way, I, I have teach the same concepts in the video version of Fretboard Theory. If you're more of a video learner, you, it might be more helpful to learn that way. And I teach this stuff in Guitar Theory for Dummies as well. Um, but it's not like I want you to memorize chord shapes. I'm teaching you to understand how chords are built and how you can take, you know, a root, third, and fifth, and you can add other notes to it. Are you going to add maybe a fourth? Or maybe a second? Or put a nine on top? Or a major seven? So I'm teaching you how these chords are built so you understand the concept. Um, and then you can play some of the songs that I reference, and you can see how some common chord shapes get used in familiar songs. That'll help things stick. You're probably already using chords that maybe you just didn't know what, uh, what their names were, or you didn't know why they were named that way. So you're going to understand that um, after I explain things to you. And then from there, it's like you will be able to figure this stuff out as you go and as you encounter different types of chords in music. So don't focus so much on trying to memorize a page worth of chord shapes. Instead, understand the concept and then learn how to play some portions of songs that use those type of chords. Now, Laurel goes on to say, um, he asks me which concepts are the most important to take away from the whole fretboard theory course. He says, are there any specific skills I should review before starting fretboard theory volume two? 
Um, well, this is kind of a two-part question. So first off, the most important concepts are the ones that apply to your playing and the music that you're performing. So if you're strictly a rhythm guitar player, then you're probably going to want to focus on chords and chord progressions. But if you're um, trying to improve your lead guitar skills, well, then you're going to want to focus on those chapters that deal with uh, scale patterns and modes and their applications. And if you're someone that really is interested in, all, in everything, well, then I guess you know, you're going to focus on a little bit of everything. Um, I was very intentional about not including music theory information that didn't apply to familiar songs. So there's not a lot of wasted information there. Um, everything that I teach is something that regularly occurs in familiar guitar-driven songs. So if you're looking to be a well-rounded guitar player, then everything is going to uh, everything's going to be important to you. That doesn't mean you need to master it all before you move on. You can learn how to use the pentatonic a little bit. You can learn how to use a little bit of the cage system. You can maybe understand how to play in one of the modes or something like that, you know, and you, then you can kind of revisit that stuff over time. Sometimes, you know, you just get started with a particular concept or subject, and then over time as you play more and you're learning more songs, you start to connect the dots yourself, you know. So I really want to get you thinking and understanding the fretboard so that things start to click and come together and make sense as you continue to play. Now, the second part of the question is, um, what should you know before you start Fretboard Theory Volume 2? So, Fretboard Theory is divided up into two volumes, uh, Volume 1 and Volume 2. That's uh, the red book or the bluish-purple book. Um, and then if you have the video version of it, um, I have all the video segments for Volume 1 and the video segments for Volume 2. And they come together in a package when you buy the Fretboard Theory Video uh, Pro Pack. Um, and in order, before you start Fretboard Theory Volume 2, you want to make sure that you understand the construction and harmonization of the major scale, as I teach in Fretboard Theory Chapter 6. So you want to understand um, how the major scale is used to build triads and, and chords. And um, you also want to understand Chapter 8, <clears throat> where I talk about modes and how you've got these seven notes of the major scale with all these seven chords, but any one of them could be used as your tonic or your starting position. So just because you're playing in the using notes and chords from you know the C major scale, it doesn't mean your music has to start and end on C. It could start and end on the second chord, D minor, or the third chord, E minor. And that's where you get into modes. So I introduced that concept. You'll want to understand those things before you begin Fretboard Theory Volume 2, because in Fretboard Theory Volume 2, I talk about borrowed chords and modal interchange and uh, I talk more about using the number system and why we would use terms such as like one, you know, uh, flat three or flat six, flat seven, and that sort of thing. So if you have not completed those chapters in the first volume of Fretboard Theory, um, chord progressions and playing by numbers, chapter six, and then modes in chapter eight, you're not really going to understand what's happening in Fretboard Theory Volume 2. And there's really cool stuff that happens in Fretboard Theory Volume 2 that's going to just take your understanding of popular music to the next level, so you don't want to miss out on that. Uh, Guitar Theory for Dummies was basically like a rewrite of Fretboard Theory Volume 1 and 2, and I kind of condensed it a little bit for that publisher and fit it all into one book. So 
the same information is available. If you don't have the fretboard theory books, if you got guitar theory for dummies, you're good. You can uh, you can learn those concepts uh, in that book as well. We are moving on to our next question. Chuck says, a friend and I were learning White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane, and we were stumped when analyzing the chords and tabs we found on Ultimate Guitar. Um, I've actually had a few people ask me about this song, uh, White Rabbit, and let's play a portion of it here. I'm just going to play it from Spotify. And copyright police might come after me, we'll see. So what key is this? So F sharp major to a G major. Okay, those of you that uh, have learned some guitar theory from my books or videos, what key has the chords F sharp major and G major? Oops, there we go. Um, by the way, I'm playing my PRS guitars, uh, McCarty 594, through my Kemper, using my little performance here that's got some various Marshall amp profiles in it. So F sharp major, G major. Which key has those chords in it? Well, this is kind of a trick question. They don't fall into a traditional major scale key. They are actually out of the B harmonic minor scale. Here's your F sharp major. So if I play these chords, I play the um, the B harmonic minor scale, but I'm going to start on its fifth degree F sharp. Kind of a mode of the harmonic minor. This is something that I get into in Fretboard Theory Volume 2, so cool stuff. That's why you want to make sure you understand the first level before you get into this complicated, more complicated stuff here. It's not actually that complicated. Um, harmonic minor occurs a lot in uh, popular music, and um, there's not a whole lot to it, so it might sound a little confusing now if it's new to you, but once you understand the concept, um, it's, uh, it's, it's fairly simple. and the same ideas get used in music. Now, if we fast forward in this song. One pill makes you larger, and the ones that do anything. Alice. Oh, here we go, okay. Go ask Alice. When she's ten feet tall. Now we have an A major. And if you go chasing. That was an A major. A C and a D major, so it's like, okay, how does this, um, how does this fit in? So we were in like B, we were in a mode of the B harmonic minor scale. So uh, I've kind of hear this as a temporary uh, key change, and you know this progression here is so common where you. Like if A is one, then C is your flat three, and D is your four. So you know this is stuff like you know, 
like your typical kind of blues chord progression. Think think like Lagrange by by ZZ Top, you know. Um. So that's kind of the pattern that I immediately pick up on here. So this song is not based strictly in a major scale where it's sticking to strict major scale harmony. Um, you know, they used some harmonic minor there, and then they had kind of a shift of focus, a key change to A, where they used some intervals that they may have picked up from blues songs or something like that, and put together kind of a unique progression that sounds a little unusual um, and is maybe fitting with the, uh, with the ideas they're talking about in the song. I'm not completely familiar with the lyrics, but it might be a little psychedelic, so they're probably intentionally wanted to have some twists and turns here musically and not have something that sounded um, more, uh, I guess, traditional or, or predictable. We are moving on to our next question. Josh says, I cut a tendon in my left pinky and I can only bend at the base, not at the first or second knuckle anymore. I assume this would prevent me from playing most chords, but now I'm wondering if I can work around it. Um, so, you know, I get questions like this from time to time where people have some sort of uh, injury or limitation or something, and um, they're asking for advice on how to deal with it, or sometimes they're kind of, they might use it as an excuse. They might say, well, I tried one of your courses, but, you know, I have an injury on my hand, so, you know, I can't play. So the question is, uh, can he work around it? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Um, you know, if you can't use your fourth finger, your pinky finger, there is so much that can be done with three fingers. In fact, you might, you could play with two fingers. There's a very famous gypsy jazz guitarist named Django Reinhardt, and he had paralyzed uh, two of the fingers on his fretting hand, his third finger and his fourth finger, and he just used his first two fingers, and he was fantastic. Here's a little Django, Django Reinhardt. This is called Minor Swing. Reinhardt was very influential, very famous guitar player. You can find some videos of him on YouTube. Um, just put Gypsy Jazz Guitar Django Reinhardt. It's spelled a little funny, but whatever, you'll find it. And sometimes he's just simply shredding with two fingers, and it is really cool to watch him play. So can you work around a limitation like that? Yes, you absolutely can. And sometimes it just takes, uh, you know, a little ingenuity. Um, you kind of have to think outside the box. You're going to have to do things differently, you know. Um, but doing just because you have to do things differently doesn't mean you necessarily have to be limited. You can find videos of guys on YouTube playing guitar with their feet because they have no arms. So if, you know, if someone can learn how to play guitar with their feet because they have no arms, I think that you can learn how to play guitar with limited use of your pinky finger or whatever other limitation a person 
might have. I know what you're saying. Easy for you to say, Desi, you have use of all, all of your fingers, but don't compare yourself to those sort of people. Look at people who are playing with limitations and look at what they can do and think about like what you can, you can do. I'm actually a, a player that really favors the first three fingers on my fretting hand, um, particularly with a lot of lead lines and stuff. I would oftentimes prefer to stretch with those three fingers and get my pinky involved because they're just more dexterous and I've always had more control with those fingers despite me trying to strengthen that pinky finger. I have limited, I don't have the same type of feeling and control of um, my pinky on my fretting hand. I actually do on my other hand, on my right hand, it's, I can move my pinky finger more independently in ways that I cannot do with my fretting hand. But whatever... It's not holding me back. Sometimes people have thought it was a little odd that I played certain passages with just three fingers instead of my pinky. But I'm like, hey, it sounds good and it works well for me. Eddie Van Halen did that a lot too. Like he, he could use his pinky for sure, but watch how often he would play with just three fingers. Eric Johnson, who's a complete virtuoso, um, same thing. He could use his pinky, but it's amazing to see how much he played with just three fingers. We are moving on to the next question. This, uh, I don't have the name for this person, but they asked, uh, how do you keep track of measures when improvising solos in a song? Um, good question. So, um, you know, the more you play songs, the more you should begin to pick up on the feel of 4-4 four, four time, you know, four beats in a measure, and you start to pick up on the feel of like sections, like when it's been four bars or eight bars, um, when it's been two sections of eight bars. So I usually can feel it, um, but I also would plan things out and did that a lot. So sometimes the best way to be spontaneous is to not leave spontaneity to chance. So if I have to fill a long section and it's critical that I come, you know, out of it at a certain time, then I'll maybe come up with like kind of a game plan of how I might build that solo, maybe start in one position and know that once I complete, you know, um, uh, the first eight bars or something like that, then I move to another position and so on. So I've done that quite a bit. And I had to do that recently when I played a song called I Want a New Drug by... Huey Lewis in the News is I was playing with a Huey Lewis tribute band called The Heart of Rock and Roll. And so I pulled this up a little bit. There's a lengthy solo section here. Play a little bit of it. Comes after this little horn thing. So it goes into this guitar solo. And this is actually a 28-bar guitar solo. This is uh, Chris Hayes, guitarist for Healers the News. Great player, great writer. Came up with a lot of these riffs and hooks and these killer rhythm guitar parts and lead lines and stuff. Now, I can guarantee that Chris Hayes never played this solo the same way twice. It's not that sort of solo. It's not composed that way. So I'm like, okay, I don't need to learn this solo note for note. 
I can I can hear what he's doing. He's playing some minor pentatonic. He's kind of doing that mixed major minor blues mixture in there, some mixolydian mode sort of thing. But gosh, it goes on for quite a long time. They come out of it at a specific time. Hear how he comes out of it. And then right back into a word. So I was playing this with the band, and they said, we're going to do the same amount of measures, and we're going to be on a click track, so make sure you come out of it at the same time, and you want to do something similar to what Chris Hayes does so we know the cue to come to come back in. So I'm like, oh, gosh, well, no pressure here. So this is what I decided to do. So this is an A, and let's put this on here. So it's kind of like, you know, minor pentatonic. Or uh, I could put some major pentatonic in there. Or like the dominant scale. And some of that kind of blues major minor mix. So I thought, okay, let's come up with a game plan. So I thought, I'm going to start down here near the open position. I'll kind of move up to another position. And I'm like, okay, that's going to com complete like uh, the first section, or I think it's like the first eight bars. And I thought, okay, let me move to another position now. And so I kind of worked out some ideas in that position. I'm like, okay, well, I know that'll complete eight bars. And I'm like, shoot, I need eight more. I got to keep going. All right, let me go all the way up to this position. You know, I'm up in, past fret uh, 17 here. So I thought, okay, that'll give me eight bars. And I can feel that eight bars. But then I'm like, I got four more to go. Um, you know, he comes back down to this position. Just kind of lets it ring. Play something like that, and that's the cue that they know to go back into the verse, so I need to give that to them. So I'm going to mute the guitar on this track. I'm using a program called Moises, M-O-I-S-E-S. -S. Mute the guitar. I'll show you kind of what my game plan was and how I kept track of the measures here. So I start down near the open position. Alright, so that's eight measures. Then I go up to... All right, eight measures then. Whoops. Okay, then. Okay, 
made some mistakes there, but you get the, get the idea. So I kind of broke this up into sections and worked out some basic ideas. So I may not play that solo exactly the same way every time, but it's very similar. Um, I worked out some basic ideas of what I was going to play in each section, and then I can feel eight bars at a time there um, without needing to, to uh, count them. And I mean, if you had trouble counting them, you can also just plan out your playing, you know? If you can't plan out your playing for a set number of bars, then how on earth are you going to improvise for a set number of bars? So if your goal is to be able to improvise for a set number of bars, but you can't do it, work on planning out your playing for a set number of bars. The better you get at that, then the more likely you're going to be able to do it um, spontaneously when you're dealing with you know a typical amount of bars. If you're dealing with like an eight-bar solo or something, you know, you should be able to feel that. This one's a little unusual because it's 28 bars, and for the last four there, um, I had to come back and play a certain part in order to cue the band and the vocalist to come back in. So that's how I did that on this song. Um, I do that on other songs as well, following, you know, putting together a little plan like that. So maybe you need to try that yourself. And we're moving on to our next question. Dan has two questions about pentatonic scale patterns. Um, first question, he says, I realize that pentatonic pattern one is minor and pattern two is major, but patterns three, four, and five all seem to be nameless, are just called pentatonic, or do they have a name other than their pattern number? His next question is, when moving from one pattern to another, does one typically attempt to end on the tonal center of the pattern and then move to that same tonal center of the next pattern? Okay, I teach pentatonic the pentatonic scale and fretboard theory chapter two. Um, it would also correspond if you have the video version of fretboard theory, that's chapter two. Um, I also have splintered that chapter off and sell that separately, uh, the video version of that. You can find that on my website uh, or just email me if you want a link for that. Um, <clears throat> and I introduce the pentatonic scale patterns if you're not used to them, but then I talk about how they would be major and minor and how you play in different keys and transpose and how you apply them. When would you use major? When would you use minor? When might you use both major and minor? What? When would you play uh, minor over major? And I give you lots of examples of songs that have um, familiar pentatonic riffs or solos, and I've got some links and stuff to some resources so you can learn some of those parts of those songs um, and really start applying those pentatonic patterns. So... To answer Dan's question, the first question, he says, I realize pentatonic pattern one is minor and pentatonic pattern two is major. Uh, so that's incorrect. Um, there isn't a major pattern and a minor pattern. The pentatonic notes are scattered all over the fretboard. They can be major or minor depending on which note is, is uh, your tonic pitch, your root note. Um, we divide them up into patterns just because, you know, the fretboard's a big grid here, and so we've got these notes all over the place. They're all over the place, but they're all the same notes, you know, um, and either the notes can be major or minor in any position or any pattern, depending on what you're playing over. So I was playing E minor pentatonic, which is G major pentatonic. They are the same, same notes, you know, there's only five notes. It's called pentatonic scale because there's pentatonic, five tones, E, G, A, B, D, E, G, A, B, D. 
whoops, E, G, A, B, D, and so on. If you play the exact same notes, but you start on the G, G, A, B, D, E, G, A, B, D, E, G, A, B, D, E, and so on. It's the G major pentatonic. Um, any one of the patterns can be major major or minor. So first thing, Dan, is you want to understand that you have an incorrect view of how the patterns work there. Um, let me play some E minor chord. I got my looper pedal going here. So there's some E minor chord. If I play these notes over that E minor chord, and I can play these notes in any order, any pattern, it sounds like E minor because your ear hears the E notes as the starting position in the scale. But it doesn't matter what note I start on, I can start on it's going to sound like E minor pentatonic because you're hearing it over an E minor chord there. If I do the same thing with a G chord, and play through the same notes and the same patterns, Now it sounds like G major pentatonic because even though I'm playing the same notes and the same patterns, now your ear hears that G note as the starting position. So it's hearing the scale from that note. And it doesn't matter where I play those notes. It doesn't matter if I play G in pattern one, or pattern two, or pattern three, or pattern four, or pattern five, it's still a G. And so it's the same in, so there is no major pattern or minor pattern. There's a pentatonic key, and those notes can be either applied over its minor root or its major root. I explained that in my instruction, how E minor and G major are relative major and minor, so they actually have the same notes and the same patterns and stuff. It's just all in how you apply it. Now regarding the, the num numbers of the patterns, pattern one, pattern two, that's arbitrary. I numbered them. There's five patterns. So why not just, as we learn them, it's like, well, here's the first pattern. Um, let me back up. There aren't really five patterns. Then there's notes, right? There's the five notes that make up the pentatonic scale and they're scattered all over the fretboard. We learn how to play those notes by you know going position to position and fretting the notes that are in the scale and it creates a pattern on the fretboard and you can cover five different positions before you end up just repeating and so we there, there's five positions or five patterns that you play the pentatonic in um, so the pattern that I show first and call number one is the pattern that most people learn first and call number one but some people might learn the second pattern. I've heard some people refer to what I teach as the second pattern as number one, and then they number them from there. So it doesn't matter. The numbers don't really matter. But I just numbered them in the order that I teach them, just so I can refer to them um, 
but some people might number them differently, but the numbers don't mean anything. It's just, you know, it's just here's the first pattern, the first position I'm going to show you, here's the second position, and so on. All right, so the next question is, when moving from one pattern to another, does one typically attempt to end on the tonal center of the pattern and then move to the same tonal center of the next pattern? Um, so when you practice the pentatonic patterns, you can practice just playing up and down each individual position. That's done. Now I'll just go to the next one. Okay, that's done. Now I'll just go to the next one. And so on. Um, because these notes are repeating in each position, it's not like you can start at one end of the scale and work your way up to the top of it, going through all the patterns and completing the fretboard. That's not the way the fretboard works. We have multiple occurrences of the exact same pitch in different positions, so you end up repeating notes. So you just kind of practice at one position, one pattern at a time. Now guitarists do move horizontally on the fretboard, and you'll get introduced to that type of movement when you start to learn some of the songs that I reference, and you'll see how they do it. No, you don't have to finish on the the tone, the, uh, what did you say, the, the tonic of one position and start on the other one, the tonal center. Um, you don't really have to do that. Um, if I understand your question, question correctly, I'm not sure if you're asking, Dan, like, how should you practice the patterns or in or when you actually start using them to play music, what do you do? I'm talking about when you play music and you start moving horizontally. You can see how players do that by learning some of the songs. So, for example, Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. So I'm starting in my pattern one. Then I slide into pattern two. Now back into pattern one. In this case, I slid from, if we're going to think of this as G major pentatonic, so G, A, B, D, E, G, A. So I slid from the A into the B, into the D. Very typical movement to go from pattern one into pattern to like that. Uh, another example would be something like um, Purple Haze. This is an E minor pentatonic. E is our root note here. And I'm starting in, I'm pl playing first in pattern four. Then I shift positions and finish in pattern three. Pattern four. Pattern three. So learning s songs like that is a great way to see how the pentatonic scale is used and how you would move horizontally. Um, another great song to learn is Pawn Shop by Sublime. Um, it's got this really fairly simple but cool pentatonic-like lead part. Um, moves horizontally and goes through the different patterns.
Um, cool song if you haven't heard it. Pawn Shop by Sublime. I reference it in my pentatonic instruction. Go to my website, guitarmusictheory.com, and just search for Pawn Shop, and I've got a free lesson on it with some tab. It's old. It needs to be updated, but it'll still uh, teach you the part. And it's a great example of just seeing how you can move horizontally, because I started in pattern four, then I went into pattern five, then up into pattern one, then one, five, four, three, two, moving horizontally. So you can inter get introduced to the different ways that you can move horizontally. Um, another example of moving horizontally would be uh, John Mayer, Gravity. When he does like the... So there's a lot of movement like on the second string here. Where I'm saying it stay in the second string. Really neat um, kind of single string horizontal uh, movement. So learn the songs that I reference. You don't have to learn them in their entirety. If I'm referencing a song because it has something happening with the pentatonic, just take a look at that little um, portion of the song and that way you can take the patterns and stuff that you're learning and you can apply it by playing something musical and you'll see how players will move vertically or horizontally how they'll slide hammer on pull off bend and you really get to see how those patterns come to life and become music and we are moving on Zach says I'd like to schedule a visit to find out how you could help me reacquire my chops it has been over 10 years since I dedicated some serious time to the guitar. My chops have suffered, and I believe that you could help me get back on the road to shredding. <laughs> well, i got to get myself on the road to shredding first. Uh, I wouldn't say that's necessarily my wheelhouse. I dabble in it a little bit. Um, you can see my course, Guitar Picking Mechanics, where I talk about um, general guitar picking skills, but I also talk about what the shreddy shreddy stuff where you do some really fast alternate picking and how you would approach that sweet picking economy picking and so on but anyway um sounds like zach here is just trying to get back into guitar and trying to get his probably just get his general playing skills together so uh zach the best way to reacquire your chops is to put together um a song repertoire so pretend like you're preparing for a, a gig pick a dozen or so songs that are uh, reasonably within your playing abilities. Learn them, review the basic parts, practice playing along with the recordings, then play along with backing tracks minus the guitar if you can find them. And if you need help with putting together a song list and uh, structuring your practice, this is something that I help people with uh, in my Zoom lesson. So just go to the website, guitarmusictheory.com, and you'll see the private lesson link, and you can see my Zoom calendar and you can pick a time in your time zone and uh, just book a private Zoom lesson with me and I can get you started on this. So you just want to do the same thing that a pro player would do, you know, and that is they're going to figure out what am I performing, I, let me learn my parts, let me practice them, let me rehearse with the band. Like you're going to essentially follow that same sort of process but you'll just be playing along with the recordings, you'll be playing along with some backing tracks.
Um, you can find backing tracks on YouTube by searching the song title plus the words guitar backing track. Um, or you can purchase tracks at the website karaoke-version.com. Karaoke-version.com. That's what I do. They've got a really good collection of uh, karaoke tracks, but there's also a tab where you can click on guitar backing tracks. They've got a very good um, uh, selection of guitar backing tracks, and most of them are, are well done, and um, you can choose if you want to change the key, you can choose that. You can They'll give you a couple different versions of it. You can have like the full version, and then the version without the vocals, and then the version without the guitar, and then you can have just the guitar. You can hear the guitar parts isolated, which is helpful as you're uh, learning songs. And so that's like how I practice. If I'm learning songs, it's like I'm going to start with, you know, pulling up the tab, figuring out what am I going to do. Oftentimes there's multiple guitar tracks in a song. So it's like, okay, which guitar am I going to follow? And then I always have to figure out, all right, let me cut some corners here. I don't need to recreate this exactly. You know, I might simplify some things here and there. Maybe it's not critical that I learn all the parts. I just have to get the most basic parts down, particularly if I'm like doing an acoustic gig or something. Well, I'm just going to strum the basic chords and maybe put in a few extra little, you know, uh, things here and there just to, uh, you know, make it sound better. But um, as you're learning songs, you don't necessarily have to learn them note for note and fuss over all the details. Just think about how can you get the basic idea of the most basic parts in that song. And so anyway, I play along, and then I like to play along with some backing tracks, kind of take the training wheels off, so to speak. Sometimes when you're playing along with the recording and the guitar is there as your guide, you don't have a problem, and then when it's gone, all of a sudden you forget where you are or what your part was or something like that because you were relying on hearing it and following it in the music. So next step for me is to take those training wheels off and play along with the track minus my parts and... Um, uh, lately, I've also been using the software called Moises, M-O-I-S-E-S, -E and you can import an MP3 if you have it. If you have songs in MP3 format, you can import it, and then it will um, separate certain frequencies by instruments. It's not perfect, but it's very helpful, and you can usually isolate the guitar if you want to try to hear what it's doing specifically, and then you can mute it, and then you can play along with the music uh, minus it. So... Um, you might check that out. M-O-I-S-E-S, Moises, which is also my dad's name. So shout out to Moises Serna, who is definitely not listening because my dad has never had a computer, never had a smartphone, never used the internet. Yep, that's my dad. Anyway, all right, Zach or anyone else listening, if you need some help getting your, your playing uh, chops back together you can follow that plan reach out send me an email um i'd be happy to help if i can maybe we just need to connect for one zoom lesson or something and i'll just help you put a game plan um, together i also might have some courses that would be a good fit so you can kind of reach out and ask me because i have some things that might be exactly what you need and you could just follow that plan so head to the website guitarmusictheory.com Scroll down, you'll see the little contact link, and you can uh, send me an email. If you're already receiving emails because you enrolled in a free course, um, you can reply to any email that you receive, and I'll get it and respond. All right, I'm going to wrap up today's podcast, um, not with another question, but I wanted to share some excerpts from an article um, that I came across on musicradar.com. Um, 
It's an interview with a guitarist named Matteo Mancuso. I've talked about him before. This is the guy. He's a phenomenal player, and he can shred like nobody's business, and he doesn't use a pick. He alternates his fingers on his picking hand like classical style, and he's unbelievable at it. Let's listen to a little bit of Matteo here. Pretty amazing. So, this article on Music Radar here, it's called Everything is Hard on Guitar. Matteo Mancuso explains why guitar is one of the hardest instruments to learn. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there's some things that really just jumped out at me that I wanted to share with you because I think they might be encouraging. So this guy's like a virtuoso player. And... Um, he talks, he says stuff like this. He says, it is really, the guitar is a really hard instrument to learn. I don't want to lie, but I spend a lot of time on my instrument. I spend a ridiculous amount of time on my instrument because in order to play like that, and also in order to maintain that level, you have to play every day. He says, you have to concentrate on technique, on dy dynamics, the touch, the tone. Everything is hard on guitar. Um, let's see. He goes on to say, I think it's one of the hardest instruments to learn. You have to achieve that kind of level where you are free on the guitar, where you can really visualize the neck in a really good way, and that takes time and takes a lot of time. And of course, I really emphasize visualizing stuff on the fretboard. So this guy's playing this like kind of almost, you know, rock fusion style here, but he says he got started at the age of 10. and was into like Angus Young and Jimi Hendrix and all the classic stuff and then he turned to classical guitar and that's where he picked up his technique and discovered he was quite good at that and applied it to rock guitar which is kind of unusual most rock guitarists don't shred by alternating their fingers classical style um, it's not something that I think that most people could do but he had it and he does it really uh, really well um, Oh, he goes on to talk about muscle memory. He says, when you build your muscles and when the muscle memory kicks in, you become really good. And that is the sort of thing where sometimes we guitar players search for this pain because when there is this pain, it means that we are improving in a way. It is a really sadistic thing sometimes. Huh. Well, you do have to practice and review things a lot so you stop thinking about it and muscle memory kicks in. That's a big part of playing well. Regarding his practice routine, he says, I don't have a really rigid practice routine like arpeggios for 30 minutes, then scales for one hour. I just grab the guitar and play what excites me most in that moment. First of all, I always try to learn songs because for me, repertoire is a very important thing. And when you learn songs, you learn a lot. Musically speaking, the three most important things are rhythm, melody, and harmony. You can learn these three things when you are learning a song. And then he goes on to say, that's why I try, that's what I try to do every day. I try to learn repertoire. I try to work on my solos, of course. I try to work on my technique, but I like to work on these together. I don't like to work only on my technique or only on my legato or on my timing. I like to work on these together, and that's how my practice works. I try to play at least, at least two, three, 
two or three hours a day. Sometimes I play more, sometimes I play less, but I try to play every day because consistency is the key. All right, well, you heard it there from Matteo Mancuso, a real virtuoso in my opinion. And of course, he's just echoing what I've been preaching forever, which is, you know, learning the theory is important, working on technique is important, but you've got to work on song repertoire and you've got to practice everything in the context of a song so you see how those things get used musically. And that's how you're going to set your goals and create your practice routine as well. So even though you might think, well, I'm not a recording artist or I'm not a touring musician, well, if you want to play at that level, then you want to do the same things that they do. So you want to pretend that you're going to record a dozen songs or that you need to go on the road and perform a dozen songs and work on getting those parts down, practicing with the tracks, completing those songs, recording them, listening back to them, hearing where you sound good, hearing where you need improvements, fixing things up, re-recording, getting the right performance, getting, getting prepared to take it on the road. And through that process, your playing is going to take shape and you're going to make improvements and you're going to reach your playing goals. All right, podcast 146 is a wrap. If you have any questions you would like me to answer in future podcast episodes, just go to my website, scroll down, and click on the contact link. And don't forget that while you're there, answer the question I ask you about your playing, and I will send you free custom video instruction that is calibrated to your current level. Whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced level player, whether you need help with some technique, or you want to delve deeply into music theory, I have a free course for you. I can put you on a plan to fill gaps in your knowledge and fill gaps in your playing so you can make progress and reach your music goals. Enroll in your free video course now at guitarmusictheory.com. And don't forget that you can find my books on Amazon.com. And my titles include Fretboard Theory, Fretboard Theory Volume 2, Guitar Theory for Dummies, Guitar Rhythm and Technique for Dummies, Guitar Picking Mechanics, and more. And finally, be sure to follow Desi Cerna Guitar on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I post videos there regularly. Make sure that you like, comment, share, subscribe, follow, and all of that good stuff. The more interactions I get, the more exposure I get, the more people will be introduced to what I'm doing here, and we can keep this good thing we have going. And speaking of keeping it going, I couldn't do it without your financial support. So if you have yet to make a purchase on my website or order books from Amazon, please do it. That's how you can keep this podcast going and free, and you can keep me continuing to make this great content that I put out there for you. All right, I've said enough. Thanks for listening, Guitar Engineers. I'm Desi Serna. Before you go, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. Give it a five-star rating and a great review if you can. Then keep playing and stay tuned for more. Mm-hmm.